Chapter 16, that's the final chapter. I mean, this is, this is the home stretch, and it's been a good study. And I will say that before we begin tonight, this, there's one more sermon next week as we conclude chapter 16. That means that on May 11th, we begin the study of the book of Revelation. And from what I've already heard, I will say that the, that the uh, atmosphere will be different on May 11th here. I think that uh, we can expect a lot of people, it sounds like, from what people are saying. Everybody's asking me when it starts, and people are excited, and, and my whole response is very simply, where have you been? Where have you been? All right, we've been meeting on Wednesday nights for a while. Anyway, just letting us know to be prepared for that, and uh, I'm excited about that study uh, in the book of Revelation, but I'm also excited tonight as we conclude or begin to conclude what Paul's been talking about. Now, remember last week, Paul was talking about the resurrection, and that's what we've seen the past several weeks as Paul took us to that glorious future and began to describe the fact that we will all rise one day in Christ. And not only will we rise, but we will have a new body. And this body will be like Christ. And not only will there be new bodies, there's a reason that we have to have a new body. That's because there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. And our bodies aren't ready for that as they are. So all of this will be new. God is making all things new. So that's the eschatological hope of all believers, that this is not it. This is, this is not the final destination for all of us. This is not the real thing, actually. This is, this is transitory. The real thing is coming, and we're going to be there. Now, that is exciting, right? And, and, and uh, you know, we got into all the kind of the imagination about what that body's going to be able to do and walking through walls, or is it going to teleport, you know? And I think, yes, myself, but I mean, it's a lot. We don't know, right? I mean, it's going to be different than anything we've ever known. The Bible's plain about that. Paul said it. Change dramatically to be like Christ. But now, it seems that Paul abruptly shifts, right? He shifts the, the conversation from talking about the glorious future that awaits all believers to, to, the, to talking about the ordinary mundane task of their daily life, right? Basically the daily grind. It's like he's talking about in, in one verse, we're, we're going to be like Christ and, and eye has not seen and ear has not heard what, what is awaiting us. And you got to take out the trash and pick up the mail and get the laundry done. And, you know, it's, it's almost like it just boom, it, he shifts to this, this ordinary stuff. But I want to say, I don't think it's an accident. I think the two are very much connected and so I want to I show us how Paul concluded verse 58 of, of chapter 15, uh, the last chapter. He said, this is the final thing he said as he was talking about the resurrection and the new body and the new earth and all that good stuff. He said, therefore, because of all of that, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So he's reminding us that it's the resurrection, the promise of the resurrection and that which awaits us, that fuels the daily grind in our lives right now. How do we make it through the daily grind? Because we know the best is yet to come. We know that this is not all there is. So pile up the laundry, you know? I mean, let the grass grow and the leaves fall. We'll rake them. We'll, we'll cut the grass. We'll do the, we're going to keep on living life. Why? Because we know that there is greater things coming for us. So that, 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 and again, I've said this throughout the study of that, especially when we were on the resurrection, that the church throughout the, the history of the church, having that eye on heaven, being heavenly minded. I know some have said Christians are too heavenly minded. They're so heavenly minded. They're of no earthly good. 
But I'm telling you, those who are heavenly minded have done the most earthly good because they have been motivated by a power source outside of this earth, outside of themselves, outside of their selfishness. They've been motivated by the kingdom of God. And, and so we know that we're invincible, basically. So we, we are willing to live and to risk ourselves for other people and to found hospitals and orphanages and missions and all those things that, that Christians have done through the years because they've been driven and fueled by that which is to come. Okay, so, so that's exciting. So let's look at this mundane stuff that Paul talks about now as he says, continue to labor for the Lord because that labor is not in vain. So what does that kind of labor look like? Well, look at verse 1. Now remember, Paul, several times throughout the book of Corinthians, has, has begun a conversation by saying, now concerning such and such, now concerning this. Well, we've already established that 1 Corinthians is an answer to the Corinthian church. They've written him a letter already, and they've had questions about certain things, and they've dealt with certain issues. Now Paul is answering them back. And so that's why he's saying, well, now concerning this. And now concerning that, well, in verse one, he says, now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collection when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredited by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. Now, this again seems very ordinary. Paul's just giving advice to this local church how to take an offering up to help the church in Jerusalem. We know based on the book of Acts, based on Romans, uh, and also 2 Corinthians, that the church in Jerusalem has fallen on hard times, either through persecution or famine. And the churches in Macedonia and Achaia, and now Paul's talking here to the Corinthian church about taking up offerings to help them, okay? So that's what's happening in the context here. But I think, you know, even though Paul wrote, you know, in Romans 15 that the church in Jerusalem is struggling, it needs an offering, and even though this passage is specifically geared toward the Corinthian church, how they are to respond to that need and how that offering is to be taken— I think there's a lot of general truth about giving that we can learn from this. So if you didn't know you were going to hear a sermon on giving tonight on Wednesday night, right, in the book of 1 Corinthians, or the crowd would even be smaller. But here we go. You're here, you fortunate ones. But I think it's interesting. This is how we learn. How do we live for Christ? We read his word, and we see what the early church did, and we listen to these instructive words from the apostle under the leadership of the Holy Spirit that guided Paul's hands to write these things. And Paul laid it out. He said, listen, here's, here's the instruction. Just as I've instructed the churches of Galatia, so you are to do likewise. So there is a system. If we look back at the early church and we see the patterns of how the church worshiped and how the church served, that's what we should be emulating. We don't need to be emulating the new ideas of the day, right? The new church on the block. We're a fresh new idea. Right? You've heard some of these sales or gimmicks, I guess, what do you call it? Uh, publishing or marketing. That's the word marketing and branding. You know, we're a new fresh way to serve. We're a new, a new fresh look at the Bible. Woo, be leery of that. We want to be our grandparents' church. <laughs> we don't have that tagline. We're not your grandparents' church. I say, we're your great, great, great grandparents' church, right? We, we want to look at what the Bible shows us the church was doing, and we want to emulate that, okay? So this is what Paul's telling us. What about our giving? What should we do? 
And some of the general things we learn from this passage is, first of all, giving is to be regular. It should be regular. He said, in this case, weekly. He said, every time you meet. Now, this, this coincides with, with the history of the church because the church meets weekly. As I said in my sermon on Sunday, that is an appointed day. God ordained that. Hebrews reiterates that by saying, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. This, this, the Lord's day, the Bible calls it, that, that first day of the week to commemorate the resurrection of Christ. The church has been doing that for 2,000 years. So it's a regular thing. So, so it made sense that since they are already gathering, I'm just pointing out that if we look at this, it shows us the consistency of, number one, the church meeting on the first day of the week, every week. Paul agreed, that's what you're doing. And he's saying, since you're already meeting every week, go ahead and bring your offerings every week. So it's a regular thing. Giving should be a regular thing in our lives, tied directly to our worship in the church. That's what we're seeing here. And that's how we do it, by the way. And obviously people, our church is not as forward about it as some churches. We don't actually pass a plate, although I'm kind of thinking about it. Um, Not for the reason that we need money. Trust me, God is blessed. It's amazing to see the generosity of our church. But I think it is a, 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 an opportunity to, to just worship, but that's a whole other thing. We have the, what is that called? An offering box. There it is. I'm looking right. Not you, Ray. Ray's not the offering box. <laughs> the box is behind Ray. And there's another one out there and one downstairs. But the idea there is that's still an act of worship. Whether you're doing it publicly here or you're doing it in your heart as you walk in the door and you put it in that box, or you give online, that's still an act of worship. Because you're saying, especially online, that's what people say, they say, online giving, that's so cold. That doesn't seem to be like worship. But when you think about it, it's even more so because you've committed to God and said, Lord, you are, I'm giving it the first fruits. This is coming out whether I remember it or not. I mean, this is set up on an A-H-C-H-A-P, whatever it's called when you bank draft or whatever. It's set up to come out automatic. And what, what have I done? I've committed to the Lord to say, Lord, you are worthy to get this no matter what. Think about it. If my mortgage is worthy to be on the reoccurring payments and my car payment is worthy, shouldn't my love for God and, and my giving to him be committed enough to say, this is it, Lord. I'm not just going to do this when, it's, when I've got an extra bit in my pocket. I'm going to do this as a priority. Okay, enough of that. Now, so giving should be regular. Number two, it should be personal. I kind of hit on that a little bit. It should be a personal thing. Each, he said, let each of you, he said, on the first day of the week, let each of you set aside something. So again, it's a personal thing. It's an individual thing, something that each individual Christian should do. And then third, along with that, it is proportional. It's proportional. He said, each is to give according to how he's prospered, how he has prospered. That means according to what you're, 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 you're making, Right? So, man, this is a, an important process that some of us miss. I think it's, this, this is where people ask, well, do you believe in the tithe? The tithe, right? Old Testament thing. It is Old Testament, and it is also, could become legalistic pretty easy. So that's why you, you don't hear me talk about tithe and, and say, you better give your 10%. It's a good starting point, right? I mean, that's definitely the, the, what I would call a beginning point. But I don't think we should be legalistic about it. Because then we can say, well, I gave that. Well, you know, some people give way more than 10%. So they use that 10% as a, as, as a way out to say, okay, I can give that 10%. Man, I got all this for me. Look at all this. Woo! Right? 
So some people should be given 15% or, or 20 I'm just saying, when you look at what Paul's going to say here in a moment, it opens up this whole thing of giving and takes it away from a legalistic-based motive to a grateful love for God and amazed that he saved me motive, <laughs> okay? It's showing my gratitude. And so, so this idea of proportional, yes, what I, I shouldn't give above my means. I got to share this real quick. It's Wednesday night, right? So when I pastored in Detroit, Michigan, when I was a young guy, first church ever passed, only married one year, and me and Tony headed up to Michigan. Anyway, um, there was a guy there who had all kinds of financial trouble, and he came to, to the pastors. Well, it was just me and all the deacons. But anyway, and he, and he, and he was just in trouble, about to, about to lose his house. I forgot how many months behind the, he was on the payments. His car had been repossessed. I mean, just one thing after another, he was just so far behind. And, and in this conversation, what we learned, and he worked, by the way, a great job at Ford Motor Company, made a lot of money, been there for years. So it really wasn't his income. It wasn't that he wasn't working. And in our conversation, it was discovered that he was tithing 50% for so many years. And his motive was, if I give, then God will give to me. And so if I keep giving over and over and over without even paying bills and all this, if I give to God, he'll make sure that's all taken care of. He misconstrued some verses like Matthew 6, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added. His idea was if I, if I seek God first and give him all my money, he'll pay my CG&E bill or my Duke Energy bill or whatever, right? He'll pay my car. That's not what it's saying, right? So, so he learned hard, the hard way. It's kind of a prosperity gospel idea too. If I give, the more I give, I'm going to get this check in the mail, right? <laughs> but, but that's not why we give. For one thing, we do not give to get, number one. And so we told him, I mean, this was probably strange. We said, stop tithing at all. You've probably given enough for the last 20 years, brother. So from a legalistic standpoint, you're free, right? You've done it. But pay your bills off. Get on these plans. So we helped him. We helped set him up, and, and he began to pay bills off and so forth. I'm just saying, folks, this idea of giving this 10% can sometimes become a weird legalistic and even magical thing. If I give 10, if I get 12, if I get 15, 12. Paul's not saying to give like that. He said, give in proportion to what you make. So that would have been good for this fellow to know, to say, I should give in proportion to what I'm making so that I can still pay my bills, but still give cheerfully to God. Does that make sense? Hello? We still, okay, good. Sorry to get on that little tangent, but here we go. So along with this, 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 point, this point, I just want to get to 2 Corinthians real quick. Because Paul gives us some more insight into their giving, into their giving and what it was doing, and, and he gives us insight about giving. Look at verses 1 through 5 in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. He says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Now, again, this this is not saying they, gave, they, they weren't eating, but they were giving so much that they couldn't buy the extra things maybe that they were going to buy. They said, we're going to give sacrificially. That's what he's saying here. They, they didn't have way extra to give, but they did give. He says, for they gave according to their means. So that's another important thing, right? We should live, I say, below our means, but we should give according to our means, Paul's saying. You're, as you make, then you can give. But look what he said, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord. Now, this is what he's saying. They, they even gave extra of their own accord. Now, again, this is the, I'm not trying to promote 
what I had going on in Michigan where you give so much that you can't do anything else. But not to hoard, right? Not to say, I've given it a little bit, just a, what's the least I can give to God? That's what people have sometimes approached me about the tithe. What's the least amount, percentage I can give and still be good with God and then keep all that I want? That shouldn't be our, our idea. Our idea should be, what's really the least I need to live on? What do I need to pay my bills to, be, to, 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 to save a little bit, to, to do these things? But then the rest, I want to invest in the kingdom. That should be our, our point. So notice this. Paul goes on to say, he says, he says as, as I can testify, they gave beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints, and this not as we expected. But here's why they were doing that. Here's why these people could say, okay, instead of taking our vacation to Egypt this year, <laughs> we're going to give that money to this special project for this thing. So again, they weren't putting themselves in harm's way or putting their family in debt, but they were saying, we're going to give up something that we have already could have gotten. We're going to take that money and give above and beyond for the, for the cause. Why? Why were they like that? Why were they thinking of these, uh, this church in Jerusalem so much? It says, because they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. And this is the truth about any Christian. You will, we will not be generous givers to the kingdom of God until we've first given ourselves over to the Lord all the way. Say, Lord, Lord, this is why I'm giving. I'm not giving to earn favor with you. I'm not giving to be saved. I'm not giving to earn brownie points. I'm giving because I have given my, give my whole self to you. I trust in you. You have saved me by your grace. I belong to you. You are my Lord. And so out of gratitude for that, I will give generously. So that's what Paul says. And I'm going to end right here with this part, <laughs> not the whole sermon, but just this section. Verse uh, uh, 2 Corinthians 9, 7. This is, a, this is really something we should all kind of write down as far as our giving in life. This should be our philosophy. He says, each one must give as he has decided in his heart. So again, in the New Testament here, we see a little difference. This is not a, he doesn't use the legalistic number like each person should give 10%. He says, each one must give as he has decided in his heart and not reluctantly, or under compulsion, so there's a big part to this right there that we need to understand. I had a preacher friend in Florida, <laughs> and I would go down there, I was a young guy, and they had me down like every year for like six years in a row to preach what they called revivals. Remember those, when a guy would come in and preach all week at the church? And so, and I'm like 25, whatever, but he would take me to his office, and he would show me these letters that he writes to his congregation every year, and it would say, thank you for giving the exact amount they gave, because he looked at all the records, this year. And if they didn't give, he would put in big, a big red ink, thank you for giving zero exclamation this year. Uh, yeah, right. A lot of love for the pastor there. Well, that sounds like he's trying to make them give out of compulsion, right? Guilt people. Paul's saying, that's not it. We don't give out of guilt. We, we don't give reluctantly. But God loves a cheerful giver. So we give because we've been given much right? Just like we give forgiveness to others because we've been forgiven much, we give financially back to the kingdom of God because he's given us and taken care of us and he sustains us completely. So there's some principles that I think we can glean from this, but I want to very quickly, we're almost really, almost really done tonight. But in, in the next verses, verse five through 12, we're going to kind of close where Paul, he hits these little, these minute things, right? These little mundane things as he's, that he's talking to this church about. He says in verse 5, he says, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, 
for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. Simply saying, I'm coming. I'm, I'm, I want to stay with you guys. I want to fellowship. I want to stay a while. And then you guys can even help me, encourage me as I'm continuing on my missionary journey. So it's just this really heartfelt, friendly banter back and forth. He goes on to say, For I do not want to see you now, just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. Which is another principle that every Christian should live by. God willing, right? If God is willing. But he goes on to say, But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. For a, Now here, look at what he says. For a wide door for effective work has opened to me. So right now, Paul lets us know where he's writing from. He's in Ephesus. He's going to stay until, until the day of or the season of Pentecost. But why? He says, because this wide door for effective ministry has opened to me here, and I'm going to take advantage of it. Now, this is, this is glorious. What it shows us is that God sovereignly opens up opportunities for us to minister for him. And, 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 and so that's what's happened here. Now, look at this tied right to this glorious opportunity that God has given Paul, he says, and there are many adversaries. <laughs> so Paul's thankful, probably even thankful for the adversaries because of this great door that's opened. But there's an important thing to get here, right? Along with God's blessings and his provisions come adversaries and come suffering, right? Come pain, struggles, Paul nearly lost his life in some of these places on these missionary journeys. And yet the door was open. God opened those doors. God effectually opened these doors for him to go to these cities and preach. But along with that preaching, those doors open, came stonings where he was left for dead outside of cities, where he was starving, right? Where he was snake-bitten, shipwrecked. All these things happened to Paul. So what I want us to understand is that God's will is not determined by the ease with which the door is open. That's the other point, right? Just because something seems easy and, and it looks like, oh, this, this has got to be God's will. Look how easy it is. We've got to be discerning, folks. We can't just say, oh, I saw a sign and it said something and therefore I did what that sign said because it had to be God. Really? I mean, Satan himself appears as an angel of light, does he not? So we have to be discerning, and we have to understand that just because something is, seems easy and seems good, oh, I got a promotion, if I take this job over in Kalamazoo, I'll be making so much more, that's got to be God's will, because it's the easy way. Not always, folks. So many times God's will is the hard. It comes with the pain. It comes with the struggle. So again, I'm not saying that those things won't happen. I'm just saying that we have to discern the whole picture and, be, and be, be prayerful about it and wait and get other counsel from people. And God will show us his will. I appreciate, I'm just going to use this since they're not here tonight. I can, I can do this. I, <laughs> I appreciate, you know what's going to start happening? All the gossips are going to start coming on Wednesday night because they're going to hear, he tells stories on Wednesday night that you don't get anywhere else, right? You only hear it here on Wednesday nights. <laughs> but we all know the bird family, right? And they're flying around all over, birds, little birds. But, um... <laughs> So we, I think most of us know that they had an opportunity to move. They were thinking about doing that, and it was, they weren't sure what to do, but, but, but their decision was made, and it may have been better or easier, or something may have opened up there. But their decision as they prayed and waited was, wait a minute now, will there be a biblical 
godly church. That's good music for this, right? Will there be a church, right? And, and that's, will it be preaching the Bible? Will, will it be, you know, Christ-centered? And, and so they felt like, man, God let us here for sure. And this outweighs this decision to say, wow, we know there's a church here. Our family is thriving here. The, the kids love it. We're going we're gonna to plant here because we believe this is God's will. So I'm just saying we have to discern more than just the opportunity itself. It may sound good, but what surrounds it? And will we lose more in the long run? And that's happened many a time. People have chased these little nice, easy feeling, good dreams, and their families have kind of blown up because they forgot. They got their eye off the priority. The priority is, is Christ Lord of our life? Is his word the center of our family? And that can happen with these other things. But I'm saying discern the whole picture, okay? Be patient, get advice from other godly people, so forth. That was not in my notes, so let's continue. Wow. He then adds this, and I love this. He talks about Timothy in verse 10. He says, when Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. <laughs> Paul sounds like a protective father here, which he is. Timothy is his son in the ministry, remember? This is, Timothy's been, he's, he's matured now since the times when Paul said, Timothy, let no one despise your youth. I don't think it's what he's implying here that Timothy was young. I think what he's implying here is we heard about the schisms going on in the first and second chapters where people were saying, I'm of Paul, I'm, a, I'm of Paulus, oh, I'm of Jesus, right? They were dividing. And I think what Paul is feeling is that, well, a lot of people don't like me and Timothy's linked to me and they may mistreat Timothy on my behalf. So Paul's kind of, in a sense, warning them. He says, look, I want you to treat him nice. I don't want you to despise him. He is serving the same God I am. He is serving God just like I am. And so I want you to help him on his way peacefully because I'm expecting him. So Paul kind of gives him a little warning. I'm going to see him, and if he tells me <laughs> that you guys mistreated him, I'm coming after you. That's kind of what I'm, I read that. That's my interpretation. But I love when he says that. You treat him nice because he's going to return to me. And I'm expecting him with the brothers. Now, Apollos, mm, I just mentioned him, right? Apollos, that super apostle, many called him. And he was a great orator. Apollos was probably, no, no probably about it. He was a way better preacher than Paul. Paul was not much to look at. Paul was crotchety. Paul was short. He had a, a hooked nose like mine. I mean, it was, a, a, he was probably bald. I'm looking more like Paul every day. I'm just saying, I'm just saying though, Apollos was eloquent, right? He was loud and eloquent and a great of stature. I mean, he was called a super apostle by people. Now he didn't say that, but people did. However, Paul, Paul, and Apollos, Paul and Apollos were on the same side. They were friends. They were preaching Christ. They were interested in building the kingdom. But there was this division, right? We saw it from the get-go. And now at the beginning of the book, we saw Paul mention this division about some are loving Apollos and some say, no, I'm of Paul. He's better. And now at the end of the book, he brings him up again. But look what he says. <laughs> he says, now concerning our brother Apollos, you guys have written about Apollos coming to see you. He says, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come to you now. I think it's pretty blunt, right, what Paul says here. Paul does some things here. Number one, he, 
he diffuses any false notion that he and Apollos had something against each other. He said, I, I encouraged him to come to you guys, so I just want you to know that. I'm encouraging him to come visit you. This is fully his idea not to come to you, but he has said sternly that it is not his will to come to you now. He will come to you when he has the opportunity. Now, this is how this section ends, this verse 12, and it's, it's interesting because why was it that Apollos wasn't going? I think it is because he knew the friction was there. I think he knew the faction was there, that people were choosing sides. And he said, I'm not going to play into that right now. I don't want to be a distraction. And so I think that's what's happening there. Now, this is mundane way to end this, right? That's the end of the sermon, right? But I want to conclude with this little statement. So listen to this. The passage teaches us, this passage teaches us that the hope of what is to come gives us the strength to live and suffer the day-to-day mundane things of life. Living life, planning trips to go see people, planning the visits to a neighbor or a friend, the shut-in to encourage them, pray with them, going to work, setting out your lunch, (laughs) right? Don't forget your badge, like my son does all the time at the hospital. Rosa, can you believe that? Anyway, um, you know, being sure we're getting these mundane daily things of life, that's kind of what he's saying, right? But it's our hope for the future that causes us to continue to live day by day by day, talking to people, helping people through troubles in our church, praying with them when they're hurting, laughing with them when they laugh, celebrating the birth of their child, praying with them at the surgery when they don't think their wife's going to make it through. I mean, this is the day-to-day life of a Christian. It's not glamorous. It can be hard. But because of what's to come, keep on keeping on. That's what these verses are telling us. People come, people go. Doors open, doors close. Oppression and suffering happen. The sadness of being separated from friends and loved ones. The joy of being reunited with those we love. This is the ebb and flow of life. But I want to remind us what Paul said. Be steadfast in this daily mundaneness. Immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For your labor is not in vain. The best is still yet to come. Let's pray together. Our Father God, we are grateful for your word that that shows us that it's your grace that works in us to do great things for your kingdom. It's not us. We see that Paul was a human just like us with his faults and frailties. We see Apollos was just a human like us. We see that all the church of Corinth were sinners just like us. So anything that good happens, it happens by your grace and by your strength and by Christ in us. So, Father, I pray that we will be encouraged by the truth that you have saved us by your grace. You equip us with your spirit and your word, and therefore we can persevere in our marriages, in, in our jobs, in our lives that are mundane day in and day out because you've promised us that we will persevere in Christ and that there is a future that we literally cannot believe with our minds right now. Thank you for all of this in Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.